Hi, my name is Gary Myers. And I'm Joe Fontenot. And we're the host of the Answering the Call podcast. And this is the podcast where we talk to people who are answering God's call. Today, our guest is Adam Hughes, the director of the Adrian Rogers Center at NWTS. He talks about why pastors are so busy, the value of being a statesman, and how not to crash and burn in ministry. And so, here's Adam. All right. Adam Hughes, you are the assistant professor here at NOBTS of Expository Preaching. You're also the dean of chapel, and you're the director of the Adrian Rogers Center. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, appreciate you guys having me on. I, I consider it uh, an honor to have the opportunity to sit down and just discuss some topics that maybe would be interesting to some people and, and helpful to people in, in ministry and or maybe even different walks of life. So I appreciate the invitation and the opportunity to come and sit down with you for a few minutes. Right on. So I have a question for you. Uh, you are the director of the Adrian Rogers Center. Um, my question is, why is Adrian Rogers still relevant? And here's what I mean. Uh, we have tons of influencers today. We have tons of people with big followings who are doing all kinds of things. Why are we looking back what value is there? Yeah, so I, I think I would answer that question maybe in a, in a couple ways. Let me answer it kind of generally, very quickly, and then I'll specifically talk about Dr. Rogers from my perspective. I think just in general, when we ask the question, why is it important to look back? Because it's not like today, across the board or even within SBC life, that we would say, uh, we don't have any influencers or we don't have uh, recognizable leaders or preachers, so why do we look back? And I, I would answer that question um, from, from two different ends of the same perspective, generally speaking this way. I think, number one, so that the things that have been done very well in the past, we can learn from to do well ourselves, obviously in a different context, maybe with a little different application. But that way we don't have to reinvent the wheel. But I think the other side of that is, I had somebody say one time uh, very wisely, you don't have time. You don't have time in your life to make all the mistakes, so learn from mine. Mm-hmm. So I think the other side of the coin is we also, not saying Adrian Rogers did anything wrong, but we also look through history. We look at leaders in the past, and we understand they're not perfect. Mm-hmm. So we see the things that maybe they didn't do as well, so we don't have to repeat them to learn, hey, those aren't good things to do. That's how I would answer the question generally, but if you specifically ask me about Adrian Rogers, I think I would answer that this way. I think it's because of who he was, when he was, and what he was good at. In some ways today that, yes, we have people that follow those footsteps, but maybe not cumulatively the way that Adrian Rogers was. Mm -hmm. You know, who he was just in Southern Baptist life. It's hard to talk about how influential he was in all the different areas that he played you think about who he was just as just a, as a biblical expositor, a great biblical preacher. I, I understand we have great biblical preachers today, but he kind of even in that generation set himself apart in a way that even other great biblical preachers of that generation looked to and said, mm-hmm. hey, here's the guy. I think it was W.A. Criswell that said once in a generation you have somebody come, come along that's such a great uh, spokesman for the Lord, such a great leader, that you just have to kind of take stand up, take notice. That's not a direct quote. And he said, in our generation, and this is a, this is this is W. A. Criswell saying this. In our generation, that that man is Adrian Rogers. Mm. Jerry Jerry Vines still around today, but in that generation, talked about him that way, and others as well. So what he did from the standpoint of being a great preacher, mm. being at a significant church like like Bellevue, 
being a visionary at Bellevue, which we can unpack a little bit, and, uh, and, and then I also think about just how great of a leader he was, which gets to when he was. Mm. Think about, to some extent, I don't know that our convention ever saw a time like before Adrian Rogers, and we haven't seen one since, where he was right smack dab in the middle of what we know as the conservative resurgence. Mm. And I think God raised up someone for such a time as that, like Adrian Rogers, because he had to deal with some very controversial issues, I understand he wasn't the, one of the architects of the conservative resurgence, but if my memory serves me correct, we say the conservative resurgence started in 1979. He was the first conservative president elected during that span from 79 to 90. He, was, he, he served his first term as president of SBC in 1979. So you think about when he was and what was going on, the controversy, the difficulties, the things that had to be navigated. And he was a man that probably did something did something that I don't know that that others, I'm sure it can be duplicated, but did quite like he did, where he could take a strong stand mm. on some things that could be very divisive, some theology that had to be stood for, but yet he could do it in a statesman-like way. Mm. He could do it in a way that, um, you know, he was gracious, he seasoned his words with salt, but he still spoke truth. And in that, just had a way with words that was incredible. Then I think the third thing that I would say, and, and I don't know if this is the best way to say it or not, but, but the fact that uh, his legacy remains and why he's still relevant today, because to some extent, we at New Orleans, who are his alma mater, we're not the only ones in SBC life still talking about him and still pointing to him, hmm. because I think he, 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 he was who he was, he was who he was when he was, but he, but he did it in such a unique way that although the application may be different, it has tremendous relevancy today. Mm-hmm. I think he did some things. I would use the word statesman. Mm-hmm. I, this isn't a shot at today, mm-hmm. but I think he was a statesman in a way that I don't know that we have represented in this day and time quite like that. I don't even know if we quite understand mm-hmm. the significance or need for that or even value it like he did. So tell me more about that. What do you mean statesman? Well, I, I would define statesmen like this, or, or let me explain what I mean by that like this. This is not a bad thing. Mm-hmm. To some extent, I think today, when we get involved in our own ministries, which is not unvaluable or unimportant to do, sometimes we don't think about the ministry beyond just the scope of that ministry, like a church. Do I do anything? Am I involved in my community? And I'm, I'm, am I involved in speaking truth into other areas, even of my convention, that doesn't directly involve my church? Mm-hmm. I think Adrian Rogers was one, specifically, who understood the value and would, would involve himself in things related to the community and broader than just his church that didn't necessarily bring specific or explicit value to his church. And he would do it in such a way that was edifying and beneficial to to all that hurt him, to all that he was involved with, even to the point of being involved in the community. I'm going to say, obviously, ultimate with an, with an aim for the gospel and discipleship, but for the good of the community. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think today maybe we've lost a sense of that uh, or the need for that or the time for that, however we want to look at it, and I think he did that. The, the other thing that I would say is uh, his... His ability and and his recognition of the need, when I say statesman, 
this might sound like a little bit like it's a, it's a little bit arrogant or presumptuous, but I don't mean it that way, and I don't think he ever did either. To be able to speak to issues in the convention and to be able to speak for the convention in a way, again, that takes strong stands but goes beyond the scope of just that that affects specifically or explicitly his own ministry. What would a pastor today who maybe has a church of like 100 and maybe in a smallish community, or maybe not, how would a pastor today implement that kind of advice? How would a pastor today be that statesman who speaks for and to his people? Yeah, I think it looks a little bit different in a setting like that than it probably did for Adrian Rogers because, you know, how many of us in ministry are ever necessarily going to be the president of the convention? Sure. You know what I mean? But I think the same principles can apply just in a different way. So when I think about a guy like that, you know, are, are, you, are you looking for avenues to get involved in your community outside of your church? And not just to be controversy or, or, or not to win a fight, but to say, I want to bless my community that opens up opportunities for the gospel, perhaps, and maybe for your church, but maybe specifically not for your church. You know, am I willing to say, hey, I, I will I will be involved in the school board. I'll be the chaplain for the, the high school football mm-hmm. team. I will go speak at, I don't even know if a lot of communities still have this, but Qantas Club or Rotary mm-hmm. or whatever. I, I'll be a voice in the community for my church and through my church in a way that's beyond just the realm of my church. And I think a second way that I think about doing it, even if you're in a church of 100 in a small community, do you have other pastors there? Could could you be a coalescing voice of other pastors there? Could you begin to speak for and with the other pastors there in a way that unifies you and understands what the greater purpose and greater vision is? So maybe it's not at the level of the SBC or the nation like Rogers. But I think all of those things are still ways that you can have that statesman-like influence or, or that realm of ministry, even in a smaller context, that's applied in a different way. Mm-hmm. I think two things to that. Number one, I think that's hard to measure. So if it's not creating direct impact to your church, it's hard to measure, and so it's hard to know if you're doing the right thing in that direction. But the, uh, the other thing is um, I think about pastors who are busy, Right, right. Which is like all of them, right, right. And I think a lot of people listening to this are going to say, you know, that sounds great, but <laughs> I'm already working eighty hours a week or right. whatever. I'm finishing up seminary, you know, fill in the blank. Sure. Um, what next? I mean, how how does a too busy pastor implement something like this? Yeah, let me answer your first question first, and then I'll go to the second question. And if I lose my train of thought. <laughs> I'll bring you back. I got a pen. Yeah, absolutely. Please bring us back. Writing everything you say down. First of all, I think you're right to say, man, that's hard to measure, certainly if it's outside the realm of the walls of our church or the ministry or the program of our church. How do we measure if I'm doing the right thing or doing it well? And obviously, because of the second question in our limited time, we want to make sure that what we're doing is valuable. But I would just say, to some extent, spiritual things influence influence in a way that really makes impact, sometimes we can't ever in our lifetime measure those things. Mm -hmm. I would say sometimes within the church we can't measure that. And I understand we always want to have some measuring uh, sticks or 
or, or evaluation tools where we can say, what does discipleship look like? How do we know when we're getting there right within the church? How do we know when we're making disciples? Sure. But even that sometimes in the church, can we always measure? Can I always measure what's going on in someone's heart? Mm-hmm. Can, I always, can I always measure what's going on within my circle of influence as it relates to other pastors? Mm-hmm. Can, I always, can I always measure what's happening in my community? Is my community, you know, if I were to look today and then a year later, and say I've I've spent a year investing and in trying to trying to be a voice for improvement, a voice for impact, a voice for whatever in my community. Even if I've done that consistently, is that always measurable? I I don't know that it always is, and so I know there's a tendency there to go. If I can't measure it, can I be involved in that? But I, I think there's a lot of things in the Bible that I don't know that we can always measure. I mean, I'm not trying to misapply a passage of scripture, no. but I do think there's a reason in which God. When Samuel is trying to appoint the next king, be God's mm-hmm. voice in appointing the next king after Saul has failed miserably, and he's looking one at one at a time at Jesse's son. The only one left is David, who's the youngest, and and Samuel and Jesse kind of think, yeah, yeah, yeah or there's no way. And God says, "Well, wait a minute, you know, I I, I look differently, I evaluate differently mm-hmm. than man does. Even to I'm going to say implied to a way that man can't mm-hmm. at the heart." And so basically that's God spurring both Jesse and specifically Samuel on and go, well, go ahead and look at him because, as a matter of fact, that is the one that I've chosen. You can't measure that from the outside. You can't yeah. measure why. Again, let me not make an unfair application, mm-hmm. but I think sometimes when we're being that statesman, when we're being involved, when we're being disciplers or disciple-making, can we always see mm-hmm. the spiritual realm? And I think the answer is no. I tell my church and my students a lot of times, I think in the world we go – Seeing is believing. Mm-hmm. So if I can see it, I'll believe it. But it's really interesting in the economy of God, isn't it, that often what we read in the Word is quite opposite. No, no. Seeing isn't believing, but believing is seeing. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes we can't always see that with the eyes, right? And so I would say because of that, do it anyway. Be involved. Make a choice to be involved anyway, which leads to the second question. I'm so busy. Um, how do I, pastor of today, no matter what church size church you're pastoring, is so busy, what do you do about that? Um, can I start with acknowledging and saying yes? That sure. is that is a true statement. Yes. But but can I give a little pushback there and go, but but am is is Adam Hughes today? Is Joe Fontenot today really any busier? Or maybe a better way to say it, do we have to be any busier than an Adrian Rogers mm. was? Uh, do we have to be any busier than a Charles Spurgeon was? And perhaps we go, well, of course we do, because we have so many more distractions that they had. You know, I think it's said of Charles Spurgeon, I'm saying all these things, and you'll probably, the, the, the listener will go look them up and found, find out that, like, all of these statements were almost right, <laughs> but wrong, you know? We, we'll put but, a disclaimer. Uh, yeah, disclaimer. Don't trust anything. Yeah, no, don't trust that. anything. That's, well, but uh, relatively speaking, I think the the the... the Facts are, or at least the the anecdotal information is, Charles Spurgeon averaged reading seven books a week during his ministry. That's insane. And we look at that and we go, well, that's because Charles Spurgeon never saw a TV. You know, he never heard a radio. He He didn't know what a smartphone or any phone was. So obviously he had more time on his hand and less distractions. Adrian Rogers never saw a smartphone. Yeah. He passed away in 2005. I think the advent, well, maybe he began to see blackberries. But in his ministry, he didn't deal with those things. Sure. So we go, they didn't have the distractions. My contingency would be, yeah, they probably did have distractions. They were just different than mm-hmm. ours. They came in a different form 
than ours. I, I don't know that Charles Spurgeon that pastored a mega church in that day or Adrian Rogers that pastored a mega church in his day necessarily had any less distractions. They were just different. Mm-hmm. But I think the difference is, and I'm not pointing my finger at any of our listeners. Mm-hmm. Let me point them at Adam Hughes. I think they probably in some ways had a better work ethic than us. Mm. Maybe that's unfair. Maybe that's unfair. Maybe they knew how to manage their time and work ethic better than better than we do. I, I, my brother and I growing up, like I think about my grandfather who was a farmer, farmed mm. actively until mm. his eighties, and my brother and I worked with him often in the summers, and like he had us up so many times before the break of dawn, hand picking purple hole peas. Mm-hmm. And that was just the beginning of his day. And if we weren't doing that, my brother and I could make an art form uh-huh. out of wasting significant amounts of time. Sure. I, I would like to say I, I don't still have that tendency. I can still have that tendency. So I think we do find time for those things today even that are important for us. Well, you know, I think there's definitely some Does truth. that make sense, what I'm saying? Yeah, I think there's definitely some truth to that because— <clears throat> you look at previous generations, they all went to war except for us. Yeah. This generation. You know, this is one of the first full generations that really has not, like, and I'm talking about draft war. I'm not talking about, like, we. I signed up for the army. That's right. That that kind of thing. They were all dragged into war, you know, whether it was Vietnam, Korea, World War II, whatever. And so I definitely think that changes a person as, as far as priority and as far as the limits of life. I think life. priority is a good word there. I think that's what we're talking about. And I say this as well to my students. Look, if the question is, I, like students in seminary, I've had this question in my two and a half years here more, more than any other question. Mm. How do you, when you get in ministry, how do you balance family? How do you balance the other things that you want to put an emphasis on and just the normal day-to-day of ministry? And my response to them is, if your question is, what's the magic formula or magic beans that make that go away, there, there are none. And I say to them, I can almost definitively say this to you. For the rest of your life, balance, balancing your time is always going to be the struggle. Mm-hmm. It's always going to be have to, have to be the task that you engage in. And so if you're struggling with balance while you're a student, between whatever it is, it's not going to change. Just the things that you're struggling with balance over might change. Mm-hmm. So I, I think you're right. I think seminary is a great place for us to learn that balance. You know, it's, I, I say this all the time. It's really funny when we go, man, I don't have any money in seminary. Well, the funny thing is now I teach at seminary and still don't have any money. Right? I mean, it's, <laughs> right. like, it's like, or, or <laughs> when I was a pastor, circle. I still didn't have any, any, any <laughs> right. money. And so I say to students all the time, I think the Lord, part of calling to seminary is, yes, the information that we gain. Yeah. But I also think part of it is the life we learn to live. Well, it's kind of like— Does, are, does that— yeah, it's, it's kind of like the person who says, you know, I really want to get married, then my life will fall mm-hmm. in line, right? And what what the reality is, as soon as you get married, two people's lives will now be out of line. Yeah, you know what I mean? Because like, unless you get your stuff in order, whatever you're struggling with, just before you bring get it. married, you'll bring it in. Whatever you're struggling with before any relationship, you'll you're, you're going to bring it in that relationship. You know, I was just thinking about this, and and. I, you know, this may be one of those things that makes me have a much shorter tenure here than I anticipated. <laughs> those uh, are the good things. So yeah, absolutely. In, I, I worked, when I was in college, I worked for Entergy, yeah. which is the energy company that services Louisiana, also Arkansas. And mm-hmm. I worked for uh, an office in Arkansas. And my boss was a guy from India. He was a practicing Hindu. Mm. And as it relates to time management and that relating to 
I'm going to use the word happiness, joy, satisfaction. He might have spoken one of the greatest. Look, all real truths are God's truths, mm-hmm. and so I think this that he said was absolutely a truth. It comes mm-hmm. from a it comes from a a, a a different perspective that may not be accurate, but mm-hmm. his statement was right. He said he remembered when he was like going into college. He said, "Well, when I get my degree, I'll be then I'll be happy." Well, then he got his degree, and it's okay. It's something else. Well, when I get married. Well, then I'll be happy. When I live in this place, well, then I'll be happy. When we have children, then I'll be happy. And he said it was – every time he achieved one of those benchmarks, mm. there was something else to take its place. And he finally came to the point, he said, no, if I'm not happy, satisfied, balanced, whatever you want to call it now, I, the, the next thing won't make it happen. Yeah. You know, uh, you know, I was just thinking about something else, too, and I'm not trying to get us off, but I hope this is appropriate. Now, let me put a disclaimer on this. I may be getting some facts a little bit off here, but the first time I met Joyce Rogers, Dr. Mm-hmm. Rogers' uh, wife, mm-hmm. uh, this is a couple years ago, and we sat down, and we were just talking about Adrian Rogers, and you hear all those stories. You know the public stories. You know the things that are laudable in his ministry, but you don't hear a lot of things related to, you know, personal life growing up always. Mm-hmm. and. And this might even be in the biography that she wrote, uh, but she was telling a story. When they grew up in the same community in Florida, mm. and she said she has some of the earliest memories of Adrian, and it was six, eight, ten years old, somewhere around their pre-teenage years. She said she would watch out the window as a little boy as he was running through the neighborhood delivering milk. I don't know what what you were doing when you were six, eight, ten years old, but I wasn't delivering milk. I wasn't delivering anything. I wasn't delivering anything, right? I was, you know, trying yeah. to, you know, figure out how to get in trouble, find time to Let's play my next video game That's or right. whatever it was. Right. And so all that to say, I'm not trying to shame this generation, but I am saying I, I wonder, and I can't defend. She didn't say this, and so I'm connecting the dots that I don't know that we can connect. Mm-hmm. But when we go back to the original question, why study a guy like this? What made him? What gave him the ability to be a statesman like this, and why does it matter? I wonder if it's some of those things that are unwritten or unnoticed or untalked about. Mm-hmm. We would say, did that have a direct impact on his ministry? And our tendency would want to be, well, no, it was probably before he was called to ministry. But aren't we Aren't we at this point, am I not, as I said here today, kind of the sum of all the parts mm-hmm. The sum it's of everything that's yeah, shaping. Absolutely. And one thing is not the whole thing, but one thing is not subtracted from the whole either. And I don't think any of those things are lost on God. Mm. How do you think a person kind of grows in that character and becomes so say you were born, you know, um you're in your thirties or forties or whatever, and you did not have to go through this older generation's life. How does a person develop that kind of character? So that that can be their part of their life. You you know me by now. I don't answer any questions <laughs> simply or in a short way. I, don't you think? And you're asking me a question that I'm kind of answering back, but it's kind of rhetorical. Don't you think a lot of that has to? Well, first of all, we all have blind spots. Sure. I think we all have blind sure. spots. Of course. And one of the things that I I want to do as a leader. Mm-hmm. I want to do as a believer. I want to do as a disciple of Jesus. Is hopefully those blind spots are not growing, but they're shrinking. Mm. And I do think this directly relates to your question. How do I build something that wasn't instilled in me because it had to be? Well, part of it is I think I think 
reducing blind spots and continuing to grow. And I think that doesn't happen in isolation as a Lone Ranger. Even in ministry, we're always talking about discipling others, but we do, do we have accountability ourselves? Do I have someone that I'm allowing? Am I, am I willing to be evaluated and not just for the point of being patted on my back and it being an attaboy, mm-hmm. but really to grow? And so if I'm a pastor or a leader in the church and I'm wanting to grow, part of that is to go to someone and go, I'm going to give you authority over my life that otherwise you wouldn't have in these areas, and we're going to make some agreements and maybe even put a plan together to begin to grow, to see some growth in this area. And 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 part of that agreement is I'm going to be honest with you, mm-hmm. and we're going to have these conversations, and we're, we're, I'm wanting to see that. It's like anything with character. I think it, it's, it's a combination of two or three things. It's some It's some – Habits that you form in your life over it, its consistency. It's it, 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 it's it's consistency over doing things over a long period of time and having someone outside of yourself hold you accountable to those things. And it could be anything. I'm struggling with this sin. Well, consistency and accountability. Mm-hmm. And accountability from outside. I'm wanting to develop this character. Well, it's consistency and accountability from the outside. If there's no plan put in place, this is what I'm going to begin to do to develop that. Mm-hmm. And then there's no one that's going to hold me accountable to doing it. It's probably not going to happen. Mm-hmm. That also comes with the willingness to be vulnerable and be honest, I believe. Mm-hmm. You know, I think there are a lot of leaders. There are a lot of leaders that have tried to be vulnerable. They've tried to be honest, and it's just like blew up. Yeah, <laughs> I didn't know if that was the end of your question or not. But yeah, that's, that, yeah, mean, that's that's sub- substantive enough for me to answer that. Yeah, and I think I think. I'm going to answer that question by saying this. So let me just talk about an area I know for a moment. Sure. Preaching. Mm-hmm. I teach preaching. I'm a preacher. And you, you and before you became a professor, you were a preacher in a church. I, that's for, right. Well, yeah. yeah, 16 years. There you go. So time. one of the things I tell my students is, you want to grow as a preacher, you need evaluation to happen. And, and I tell them on three levels. You need to watch yourself early on in your ministry, and it's going to be painful. Mm-hmm. But as painful as it is, watch yourself like once a month, once every six weeks, do that. What do you mean watch yourself? Uh, video record yourself preaching oh, yeah. and watch yourself, like yeah. literally, and evaluate yourself because you'll be your own worst critic. Mm. And like some things, people can tell me, you do this. Uh, I see myself do it. You feel the pain. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> and sometimes it's just I never ever do it again <laughs> right. just because I've seen that myself do it once. That's a, I'll never do that again because it was that bad. Right so on. watch yourself. And then I say if you have staff, some churches, a lot of churches, not staff, do some type of evaluation with them, discussion pre or post sermon. But then I say, find some people from the congregation that once or twice a year you say, evaluate me. I think all of those levels are mm. important. Now, this gets back to your question. Um, I don't. I think there's two types of people that aren't helpful for you in the congregation evaluating you. <laughs> It's the person that everything is right, and they're on your side, and they love you, and no matter what you say, they're going to say that's right just because you're the pastor. Yes, man. They're not helpful to you in, the, in this regard. Sometimes it's encouraging to have those when things are going. Sure. Like, go have co- coffee with that person when you're right. really down. Right. But that's not helpful from a growth standpoint. So you don't want them. But the others are those that are just negative and beat you down just because they're negative. About it. They're, they're not that helpful either. Mm-hmm. What you want to find is those people that will tell you the truth, positive and negative, not because they're trying to gain something on their own, gain advantage on their own, but because they're genuinely telling you the truth that will help you. You want That's the people you want to do this. But you probably can't find those people 
in one day or a week or a month. It's going to take some time to begin to evaluate who those people are. So going Mm -hmm. back to your original question, how do I keep, I don't know what you meant by blowing up. To some extent, it's like I became too vulnerable with this person and it got out there or Mm -hmm. my trust was uh, betrayed or I went too far and instead of having someone helping me, they hurt me. And so I think a lot of it, a lot of it comes down to getting the right person to help you set that strategy mm. and to hold you accountable and to be vulnerable with. Mm-hmm. And that person probably cannot be found overnight. But I think when you can find the right person there, that can work and it can keep from blowing up. Now, sometimes it's just blown up because leaders have been, mm-hmm. been knuckleheads. Sure. And maybe in that situation, now might get some pushback for this. Maybe in that situation, it needed to blow up mm-hmm. because it was going to hit. It, it was in, if it waited and drug on, it was going to be a longer disaster. It was going to mm-hmm. be a bigger disaster in the long run. Get it over with. Yes, yeah, right. Yeah. So maybe that was a part of the process as well. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that kind of makes sense as it relates to the question that you're yeah, asking. Yeah. So it's almost like finding the this circle of people that are going to help you stay in line and, and grow. It's more of a long-range process. Yeah, I think so. It's what, but you know, can't we ask this again with anything, whether it's preaching or leadership or developing care? Like, does is can discipleship be mass-produced in a microwave? Like, it, it doesn't work that way. And it's, to some extent, we're still talking about discipleship. It's discipleship at the right. leadership level. It's sure. discipleship among pastors, but that's what we're talking about. So I don't know that anything happens overnight in a microwave in an easy fashion. It's going to be painful. It's going to take a long time. It's going to be hard. Mm -hmm. We're going to have to be patient with it. We're going to have to be consistent with it. So I know this is, I know this is like blanketing, um, probably a complex issue. But what's the average tenure of a pastor? Like three point two years or whatever. Something. Yeah, you want to hear something crazy about that too? Don't forget your question. If you had a question, no. I speak in incomplete sentences. Well, and and I answer. I I cut people off. That's what I do. So this (laughs) may be the perfect podcast there. Um, They're soulmates. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I mean, it depends on who you talk to, but some people would even say the average, what, you know, a few years ago was like 18 months. I don't think that's accurate. I don't think across the board that's accurate. It's extreme cases. But if you think about that, my father in law used to say this, who was a pastor for over 40 years. He said, if you're thinking from the standpoint the average pastor is 18 months, most people will tell you it takes six to nine months to move, which means after six to nine months, you're floating resumes. Wow, that's if that's the case, that's nuts. And how could we expect anything in our own life or the church to actually improve? Plus, that seems super stressful. Oh my goodness, you're just on yourself, on the church, on your family. I mean, it just I can't I can't point to one area, one way in which that's good for yeah. anyone. But let's say it's even let's be generous. Three to four years. This is the average mm-hmm. tenure. Um, Aubrey Malfers in his book Being Leaders mm-hmm. talks about the different stages of leadership in the church. Mm-hmm. And he says uh, you've got the the chaplain stage, which is where all of you are in the chaplain stage when you arrive at the church. Mm -hmm. And what that means is you're basically doing weddings and funeral and you're kissing babies. You're not. They're not. That you don't have enough leadership change in your pocket to lead yet. Mm. Okay, you're you're just there. And then the second stage is pastor, where you're beginning to be involved more in intimate parts of people's lives and they're beginning to trust you more. And that final stage is leader. 
And as a leader, they're allowing you to make real decisions that have real consequences or value. Mm. And so he says, you know when you're in the chaplain stage because they'll call you pastor. You know, you know when you're in the, the pastor stage because they'll call you my pastor. And, and you know you're in the leadership stage because they start looking to you for leadership. Now, this book was written uh, you know, 15 to 20 years ago. I get it. But I still think there's some value to what he says. Now, mm-hmm. watch what he says. He says, at a minimum, and there's rare exceptions to this rule, to transverse from chaplain mm-hmm. to leader is no less than a five-year process. So less than five years, with with rare exception, are you actually being looked at as the leader of a church where you're able to make real decisions that have real consequences or value, Mm. but yet our average tenure Mm. is 18 months or three to four months. The problem is, if that's true, if that's true, how many of us are ever getting to the point where we're actually leader? We're wondering why the churches are in the shape they're in, why we're not seeing more gospel impact, why we're not seeing more discipleship, why we're not seeing more movement. Well, could it be that in a, in a, in an across the across the board in averages, not no one's getting to the actual stage mm-hmm. where the church is actually looking at them and they're able to lead mm. before they're transitioned out and starting all over somewhere else. Do you think the average pastor understands that or sees it like that? I'm going to say this, and I'm sure there's exceptions, but let me give sure. a blanket answer to that. Definitively not. <laughs> okay. And the reason I say that, I'd like to believe if we understood that and believed it, mm-hmm. those trends and statistics would not be what they were. Yeah. We would go, okay, it's hard now, but I'm not even to the good, good part of my ministry yet. I'm going to stick it out. I, Joe, I'm going to tell you this. I don't know that I completely grasp that in the local church always. I mean, I could tell you some things that related to that until I got here and started teaching. One of the classes I teach is church leadership and admin. Mm -hmm. And then you begin to think about the ramifications of that. Look, here's what I know. We look at a man like, let's go bring it full circle, a man like Rogers or whoever else you want to put in there. Mm -hmm. And you want to say, man, look at the impact he had. Well, how long was he at Bellevue? And how long did he stay at Merritt Island before that? I mean, you know, it's not like he was a short-tenured pastor anywhere. Mm -hmm. And here's what I know. I can tell you definitively the gospel is not less less impactful than it was then. Hmm. I can tell you definitively that the Holy Spirit isn't less able than he was then. Mm-hmm. So if there's a if there's a denominator or there's a factor that's causing us perhaps to be less effective than a Rogers or a Bellevue today, I know it's not God, the Holy Spirit or the gospel. So what is it then? Well, in some ways, it's got to be—I'm just going to say it's got to be me. Now, again, I'm not talking prosperity gospel. I'm not talking if you're not pastoring a megachurch, you're doing something wrong. Hearers, please don't hear me say that. Mm -hmm. But I'm just saying if we look and we yearn for some type of of spirit like Rogers had in his ministry and we feel like it's lacking, I I don't know that we can just always go, well, the culture is so different now and the gospel can't impact it, the Holy Spirit— I don't know if it's that. Sometimes I wonder, maybe that's some of the, the culture so different, but I wonder if some of it's just not, we're not understanding some of these things that some of these guys understood. Mm-hmm. Tenure, work ethic, balancing time, mm-hmm. understanding what it means to be a statesman, understand what it means to concentrate and focus on the right things, understanding biblical or expository preaching like they did. I, I just wonder about that sometimes. So, so let me ask you a question. So I really like the idea of statesman um, because... You know, I, I think that's probably the most accessible because we all have communities. We're all trying to reach our communities. Um, but we're all so busy. 
what kind of things do we have to give up or be willing to give up? Because it can't be our family. No. Obviously. What kind of things do we have to give up to get there? Yeah. That's a, that's a great, that is a fantastic question. Uh, and it's hard to say, right, within context, it's hard, it's hard to say. Um, Everybody's different, of course. Yeah, I, I, just, I just think, I, I think about my ministry. Were there major time killers or time suckers that I had in my ministry? This is going to sound silly. Let me just give you an example with me. <laughs> Like, I, as unfortunate as it is, I'm a huge Arkansas Razorback fan because I'm from the state of Arkansas. So how many days would I go into my office? And I'm not saying this is sinful, mm-hmm. but I'm living in – the last church I pastored was Albuquerque, New Mexico. Mm-hmm. Like, every, you know, even when it's not one of the major seasons, like, okay, right now it's like recruiting season, which has kind of become its season in and of itself. Which right now I'm, I'm letting you know what one of my time killers is. <laughs> so so I go in – how many times do I, do I start the day when I get in my office just – I'm just going to take a quick look and see what's <laughs> right. going on with the Razorbacks, see what's sure. going on with uh, with recruiting. Did anything happen over the weekend? And mm-hmm. that's just one example. Mm-hmm. And um, and before you know it, man, an hour's gone by. You know, and that's every day or three days out of the week or four, whatever it is. And I'm just going, man, like what could I do? What could I do with those mm-hmm. three to four hours extra a week? Mm-hmm. Could I replace it with something else? And, um, you know, you find yourself, let's be honest, how many hours are we on Facebook or Twitter? Uh, And a lot of times for me, it's like, hey, this cool thing happened on Sunday, so I want everybody in the Twitter universe to know this cool thing. That's not a bad thing. We're celebrating what the Lord did. But is that necessary for the productivity? And, And in the long run, does that help productivity in the area that we're talking about here? Mm-hmm. Does that make sense what mm-hmm. I'm saying? I also think about, man, in my church, and this is something that maybe churches can help with. I pastored a church one time of about 300 people. Mm-hmm. The pastor before me expanded the committee structure from 13 to 30-ish. Wow, 10% of the church. Yeah, and then when you add in the amount of people that have to fill those committees— Mm-hmm. And the bylaws said that every committee has to meet at least once a month. Oh, wow. And for the most part, they wanted the pastor present at every one of those meetings. Well, I quickly said to him, guys, if every meeting just lasts an hour and an hour and a half, I said, essentially what's happened here is, hypothetically, a fourth of my work month is just in meetings mm-hmm. internally at the church. Now, maybe no one else is it's to that level, but I do know we can get so caught up. I love the, the church I'm, I'm pastoring right now. Yeah, uh, It's a small church. Here's the, here's the two meetings that happen every month. The deacons meet, the church council meets. <laughs> a total of two hours worth of meeting per month, mm-hmm. I, You know, which would have to be necessary because I'm, I'm there by vocationally because I'm full-time here at the seminary. But, but that's a place where maybe churches can help. I, I think sometimes we meet ourselves to death. And, and uh, I, I know some people say, you know, why, why, why accomplish in an email what you could have a good meeting over? <laughs> right. And uh, I'm kind of the opposite, you know. If we can, I'm not saying we don't need to meet face-to-face. Certainly we do. But if it's just simply informational mm-hmm. or it's just simply reports or even if some of the meeting time could be 
reduced if we're sending out an email so they have the pertinent facts before we come together. Could that save time killing? These are just these are some areas that I'm telling you probably took 25 to 40% of my time in the pastorate in a month's mm-hmm. time. Some of it self-induced, some of it the way we were structured. And I think some of those things can begin to change. Yeah. I think there's definitely a mindset there. You know, whenever I've conversed with like someone who has a really big platform or something like that, like in email, for instance, I always get these super short emails from them. I send them a book, they send me two yes, lines. That's right. And so so I definitely think there's a mindset there, like every second counts. But I think something else I hear you saying, which is interesting, is um, like the power of saying no. Yes. Which, by the way, you read three of my titles. There's four, which indicates right that I'm that all that means that has nothing to do with my ability. All that means is I struggle to say no. Right? Sure. Yeah. Me too. I'm a people pleaser. Yeah. I like to say yes. That makes me feel good until I have to deliver. I have to, you have to do it. Right. I think it's Dr. Mosley here that says I love having written. In other words, I don't like writing, but I love the product being <laughs> right. over. And so it's kind of the same way with what you're talking about, right? I love having it done. I love yeah. I love I love the process of helping people and, and pleasing people and helping people, but the process of doing it sometimes yeah. is a time eater. Yeah. And you know, like I I whenever I visit my uh my in laws, I talk to my wife's grandfather who's ninety five. And he's very interesting because he was in World War II. And to me, this kind of goes back to that, those generations Mm. who were like as a generation at war. And I don't think that all of life goes back to war, but I think it is very informative. And it's like, well, just, I think the reason why is because a lot of those things, they weren't making decisions that they wanted to make. It was literally live or die. This is what we have that's to right. do. So. That's right. And it kind of shapes the way you look at life. Like, Life is not just going to be here forever. You, right. know, you see all kind of people that that doesn't happen to, right? And, and, you know, if you're here, that means it wasn't you, but you saw all this. And so I think, like, you know, going back to somebody like Adrian Rogers, um, who just came out of a very different generation, you know, you, you kind of just look at life differently. And this is, this is certainly a struggle for me um, because my natural tendency is to not do that. And so, so here's a question for you. That was a preamble. Um, what, what do you think people who, pastors, church staff, leaders of any sort, what do they have to give up to do this? Like, what do they have to be willing to, um, and I kind of asked that already, and we've kind of been talking about that, but I mean, like, what kind of, what kind of mentality did you adopt? So I would say, I, I thought about this a long time. Well, it's not that long ago because it's not like I, I'm that old. But I, several years ago, I was thinking through this just in general about pastoring and pastoring well and that sort of thing. And, and the, the, the term that I come back to, but let me unpack this a little bit, discretionary spending. Hmm. So when we mean that economically, what are we talking about? Like I've got these discretionary funds. Like what am I going to do with these discretionary funds? Mm-hmm. Well, I, I mean it from the standpoint of our time. Like thinking about like discretionary time and what what time or what segment of our life do we put in that discretionary area? That's a really good point. Like so then Facebook is not what I start my day with. Facebook Correct. I say like I've got like thirty minutes today Correct. that I can screw around. Correct. I'm gonna throw Facebook into that. Right, that's right. And I think that or 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 Joe, I'm trying to I'm trying to bring everyone over to my side. Or Arkansas recruiting. Uh, you know what? <laughs> gotta do what you gotta do, man. <laughs> that's probably that would probably just depress you, don't it? <laughs> No, I think that's exactly what I'm talking about. And 
And the question that even becomes, like you just said, so how much genuine discretionary spending do I have? And what it all boils down to, I think, is like prioritizing. Mm. Like, I, So I, we're not saying you can't ever be on Facebook. I'm not saying you can't ever read a leisure book. I'm not saying you can't ever look on internet for some news that you want to look at that's not pertinent to your job. But what I'm saying is maybe the amount of time that you really have to give to that if you want to be productive in the other areas is not as great as you think it is. Okay. So several years ago, my wife and I, when I was a seminary student, we began the process So my wife. Uh, grew up in a pastor's home. Her dad was a pastor. She married a pastor. And when she married me, I was already pastoring. Never had to go through the process of looking for a church to attend. Mm, okay, sure. so she went to the church her dad pastored. She married me. She went to the church that I pastored. Right. So we go through the process. Now I'm in seminary. We're looking for a church to go through, go to. And we began to say, what are the non-negotiables? Mm. Because what happens is you start looking for a church, and it's like it becomes overwhelming. Like, I like this one, or I like this one better, right. and I don't know why. So what we said is... Look, what are the priorities? And your priorities don't have to be my priorities. They were our priorities. Mm. But if we listed what are the priorities, and here's what we found. The list of non-negotiables was a whole lot shorter list than we would, int- before we went into the process, thought it was. it was. There were just three or four or five of those. Mm. But the non-negotiables were non-negotiable. Mm-hmm. And we started there. And then if there were extra things, mm. oh, great. That's, that's, that's great that there's extra things, but mm-hmm. it definitely has this. Well, can we approach our time the same way with our priorities? What are the things that we are prioritizing in my ministry? And what are the things that absolutely are of value mm-hmm. to what God has called me to do? What was the guy who wrote the book, uh, Eat Your Frog First or something oh, like yeah, that? Oh, yeah. I actually I remember that title, and I have no idea. Yeah, I don't know. I just remember Eat the Frog, and I guess that was the point. But it's it's like... You have the critical thing that you have to do first. Make sure you get that done first. Absolutely. And then whatever that discretionary time is at the end of those priorities, mm-hmm. yeah, sure, use it the way you want to. Yeah. But prioritize that. And here's what I think we would find. I think we would find we actually have no less or not much less time than Charles Spurgeon had mm-hmm. or Adrian Rogers had. Yeah. We're just using it different than they are. Yeah. They were. Yeah. Yeah, this has been great because every week you write on – pastors in the church and how to be a better preacher and just kind of the struggles of ministry. So this has been really great to kind of hear your perspective on that. Um, you've got a... Yeah, one of the th- I'll just say one of the things that I do, I go. try to... It's mainly preaching blog. It's mainly a preaching blog. Yeah. But one of the things I try to throw in there, just because a lot of what we talked about today does relate to preaching or pastoring, but it also relates to leadership. Absolutely. And, and, and personal development. I try yeah. to throw those things in like once a month. We do yeah. some of those as well. So you don't have to just be a preacher to come to the site. Yeah. I try to do some of those things as well. Absolutely. You've got a free guide called uh, Five Preaching Mistakes That Cause You to Lose Members. Yeah. So you've got this on your website. They can go download your website. Yeah, completely free. It's kind of a booklet. Yeah. So hopefully it's packed full of some information that could be really helpful to someone in the pulpit or the church. Absolutely. Uh, what's your website? Where can people find Yeah, so it's uh, adamlhughes.com. Adamlhughes.com. All right, that sounds great. Um, well, thanks so much for coming to the podcast. It's been great. Good to talk with you as always. Well, Joe, I'll tell you this. You and I, we, we, this is kind of like a conversation, right? We have this, these, they, what they don't know is we have these conversations all the time. We do. We just we push just, record this do time. We just push record that's this right. time. I always enjoy talking with you, sitting down. I consider you a genuine friend. You've been somebody that's blessed me since I've been at the seminary. And I, I mean it when I say it's been an honor and a privilege to be on. And to the listener, man, you guys just keep doing what you're doing. Uh, Man, I want to bless your ministry. I want to support you. I'm praying for you. Adam Hughes is your biggest fan, so thank you for listening. Thanks so much for being on. Hey, it's Gary and Joe here again. Would you do us a favor? If you like this podcast, go to iTunes and leave us a review. This would mean the world to us. Thanks.